You want to know why you're all fucked up? What is nothing? Yeah, that's deep. What in the fuck are we doing here? What is something? That's deep, bro. to that's deep bro i was abrupt i'm your host christina p thank you for downloading this episode so exciting i got a lot of emails to get to a lot of uh you know deep ass shit to talk about but first let's go over some tour dates i have added i'm so excited to do um well we we know about porkland Portland, Oregon, Helium Comedy Club, March 30th and 31st. It's pronounced Helium. Grow up. Come on. I mean, uh, April 29th, uh, Man Francisco, California at Cobb's Comedy Club. Very excited to go to USF alma mater. Yep, go Dons. May 4th, Huntington Beach, Rec Room Comedy Club. And then May 9th here in Oxnard, California, Oxnard Levity Live. It's supposed to be a beautiful club. I haven't been there yet, but I hear uh, really nice things. Uh, Amazon. Are you doing your shopping on Amazon? I hope so. I live my life on that goddamn website. Use my banner, com. And, uh, gosh, is that all? I've got a store. Is that tomsegura.com? We, we keep it all in the family that way. There's shirts that for that's deep brother shirts for my Netflix special mother inferior. If you haven't watched it, go ahead, watch that shit. Um, Yeah, I think that's it. 2019, guys. It looks very exciting. I'm going to be lining up some East Coast dates. I know I'm I'm kind of staying local because of this human I'm growing in my in my body that sucks up um, all my resources. Um, So yeah, 2019, we're going to do some theaters. We're going to go. We're going to go across the country. Can't wait. Okay, let's get into it. Okay, let's get into it. I you know what? I'm feeling funky. I miss my husband. He's in Atlanta filming a movie. Can you believe that? He's all fancy filming a movie with, uh, you know, Mark Wahlberg. <laughs> what life is this? Um, anyway, I'm thinking about him. So this is a shout out to my boo. Don't sweat the technique. Now, it'll take a while. I change the pace to complete the beat. I drop the bass to MCs, get weak. For every road they trace, is a scar they keep. Cause when I speak, they freak to sweat the technique. I made my debut in 86 with a melody and a president's mix. And I'll stay on target and refuse to miss. And I still make hits for beats. All these clubs and cars and jeeps. My underground sound vibrates the streets. MCs wanna beef and I play for keeps. When they sweat the technique. Don't sweat the technique. 
clue how many bombs have I ripped and wrecked But researchers never found all the pieces yet Scientists try to solve the context Philosophers are wondering what's next Pieces took the last to observe them I love it absorb them. They Don't sweat the technique, y'all Don't sweat it Don't hate on someone Because they do something better than you That's what it says on Urban Dictionary I had to look up <laughs> Don't sweat the technique that's how embarrassing I am, guys. That's how little I know about hip-hop. I actually just looked that up. I'm like, don't sweat the technique. I like this song for so long, I'm not even sure what, what the heck it means to not sweat the technique. That's how fucking lame I am, dudes. <laughs> 41. I don't know this stuff anymore. Ugh, what's happening? Okay, so I'm here. Uh, I feel like my nose has been congested for the last... Ugh, I don't know how many months and I'm so sorry. It must be horrendous to listen to me talk into this microphone. Um, but Hey, that's where we're at, man. Pregnancy, childhood uh, sicknesses being passed on to me. That's where we're at. Um, okay. So let's get into it this week. I watched that movie. Uh, what's that shit called? The, the, the farts in the water, the fart, the shape of, of water. Because, you know, it won all those awards. And I, I think it's so funny. Hollywood genu- generally, excuse me, champions these fucking horse shit uh, white bummer movies about babies getting cancer or AIDS or, you know, uh, I don't know, somebody getting lost in space and uh, never coming back. Like, I just, I, I can't, I don't, I don't do bummers. You know, I feel like life can be enough of a bummer. Please don't make me sit down, uh, and, and watch some, some nonsense. It's going to give me even more anxiety, but, um, but that, but this movie's not that. Uh, so I watched it, a shape of water and I just love it. I love that Guillermo, uh, Guillermo del Toro. Is that his name? I love Spaniards. I love foreign, uh, filmmakers. And it's a, it's a fairy tale for those of you who don't know. I'm not going to, I won't give away details, too many details. Uh, but we all know she, the, the, that girl, uh, the, the leading lady gets down with Swamp Thing, basically. Like she, it's, it, let's be on, you know, it, I'm sure it's a metaphor for like a million social, social and racial uh, issues that I am just, I am uh, too tired to even think about frankly, right now. Uh, but I get it. I see metaphor. I, I see that shit. Uh, but what I, you know, Hey, on the surface, it's about some chick getting freaky outside of her species, which is cool. Hey, I'm down. I'm down. And, uh, what really struck me about this film is, uh, this woman's intent, which I found to be very riveting. And, and, um, you know, I'm not going to give them, but, um, I will say, you know, look, we all know she falls in love with the the swamp guy, right? So what I found riveting about the story is the um, the definiteness with which she pursues her her love interest, right? I mean, by all definition, if your friend came to you and was like, "Hey, I'm I'm like down for this uh, this guy," oh yeah, well, what what does he do? Well, he doesn't really do much he's actually um being held by the government in a in a a fish tank and i bring him like hard-boiled eggs and we we uh well we don't talk but well i've been teaching him sign language what yeah yeah no i want to i want to get with this dude so like (laughs) 
basically, she really has an inclination to be with this creature. And the pull is so undeniable for her. And, and it is so irrational to everybody that's really close with her, right? They're, her friends are like, this is bananas, but we love you. So we're going we're gonna to facilitate this dream for you, basically. But the, the desire in her is so deep and so rooted and so pure that what she wants to happen has to happen. It has to come to be that she will be with the swamp guy, right? Just because it's like, it's a thing, it's in her DNA, man. Like she just, it's crazy. Everyone around you is telling you it's it's a silly idea. Are you nuts? You can't go with some freaky swamp dude. But despite her, uh, you know, the well-meaning others around her, she knows the heart wants what the heart wants. And, uh, so put that aside for a second and I'm in this acting class. I'm still taking it. This is the last week. Thank God. Cause the schedule is ruining my life. Um, and we did this exercise where you, uh, you bring up like your negative thoughts that you have about acting, let's say, or whatever it is. Let's extend this, this topic. So all the actors go like, ah, you know, um, I suck. And so we're trying to change that negative into a positive affirmation, right? Which you know I'm a huge fan of. If you listen to me, you know I love my Louise L. Hay. I, I believe in the power of affirmation. I believe in the power of positive thinking. I think that without it, you're, you're, you're dead because you really can form your mind. You really can change how you do business with the world uh, if your mind is right. And part of that is controlling the, the horrible thoughts that we have about ourselves because n- most of the time... excuse me, those thoughts are lies, cruel, vicious lies uh, that the ego has set out to tell us to keep us protected, quote, protected in some horrible way, right? So that we don't extend ourselves into our our greatness. We don't change how we're doing things because it's uh, it's a threat to to the organism, right? That we are called the body. So, uh, so we have these negative thoughts, these actor thoughts, and in the class it was like, I suck, or, um, <clears throat> excuse me, god damn, so gross. Uh, you know, you go into an audition and uh, they're going to hate me. Nobody likes me, blah, blah, blah. I'm not talented. And so the 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 point of this exercise was that you would say the opposite, right? Which we've I've talked about affirmations. You put it in the positive. You take out the negative because the brain, the unconscious mind doesn't understand the negative. It only understands the positive thing you want to be doing. So let's say you want to stop drinking, smoking, overeating. You don't say to yourself, uh, I'm not going to smoke anymore. You say, I am a non-smoker. Or I, uh, I won't over... No, you don't say your affirmation isn't, I'm not going to overeat. You say, I, I eat until I'm satisfied and then I stop. So, but in this class, uh, people were using examples of affirmations that were like, um, you know, one of them was, uh, uh, you know, I'm nervous to audition. They're going to hate me. And so one suggestion for an affirmation was, they're lucky to have me. I'm, I'm the most talented person in the world. Uh, and then for stuff like I suck, the affirmation, you know, offered in class was like, I'm the best that ever was. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm fantastic. Like, you know, I'm fantastic is fine, but more like I'm, I'm better than everyone. 
And not not to poo-poo this exercise, by the way, or this class or anything like that. But I, I just know from per, from my experience and from, I would say, is more spiritual perspective that I think when we do, when we self-talk and we overcorrect and we go, I'm better than everybody, the problem comes um, because you're still comparing yourself to other people, right? You're still working from the outside in. So if your self-esteem is an outside job, well, you kind of fall prey to comparing yourself to the outside jobs, to the outside world, right? But if your power comes from within, so let's say the affirmation, let's say it's the audition thing. I'm afraid to audition. I'm, I'm nervous. They're not, they're going to hate me. Well, the affirmation isn't, they're lucky to have me because boy, oh boy, uh, I don't know about you, but if somebody walked into the room and their, their affirmation was, you're lucky to see me, you're lucky to have me in your presence, I, I think on an unconscious level, I would be repulsed by that person, right? Because that arrogance, arrogance is not the same as confidence. And I've seen it over and over in stand-up, over and over in stand-up. Uh, arrogance passes for confidence for a while, for a while. But ultimately, those people unravel because your confidence is not rooted inside. So for, okay, so what would my affirmation be? I suck. They're going to hate me. My affirmation is, uh, uh, the outcome is out of my control, but I am going to be, um, a beacon of light, a beacon of joy, and I'm going to present this material, uh, in a fashion that in the best way possible. Because how other people feel about you is none of your business, you know. And I and I think uh, and I think when we overcorrect and we tell ourselves we're number one, it's like first of all, there is no number one. It's a silly. I, yeah, there are people that are amazing at what they do, but like, there's so many of us doing same things, and everybody has their part, and nobody's any better. Especially when it comes to artistic endeavors, right? Um. There are certainly, you know, things that are more popular for, for, I don't know why, what reason, but it certainly doesn't make them better, better or worse qualitatively or or whatever uh, than you. It's just a silly idea that art can be categorized as better than. I hate awards for that very reason. I do not, um, I don't like award shows. I don't, uh, I don't watch them. I don't think that they're... I don't know. I don't. I just don't agree with them philosophically. Uh, usually, because it, the uh, voting process for these films is such a ubiquitous sort of mysterious thing, and it generally goes against the popular consensus of what is good. I mean, shit. If we polled America on what the best movie of the year is, you'd probably see Vin Diesel getting an award for Fast and Furious Eight not the uh, the Shape of Water movie. So, I mean, it's so subjective. But again, back to this idea of rooting your esteem, your self-esteem in a place not arrogant, in a place not comparing yourself to others, but in a place of like, hey, you know what? I'm just doing my thing. And whether or not people like my thing is so out of my control and really not worth my... Uh, concern and worth my time worrying about. And, uh, and I'm going to just continue to sing this song because I can't help it. Right. The lady wanting to fuck the swamp guy, 
that's such a pure drive in her. It's such a pure uh, desire. It goes against reason. It goes against everything. And that's why she, you know, succeeded in banging her water dude because that's her intent. And it was so pure. And it wasn't about being better than anybody. It wasn't about, there was no negative um, motivation there, but to sing her song. And I, and I think too, you know, I've seen it time and time again, that motivation is really important, especially in creative endeavors. Because uh, if you're creating from the outside in, meaning you're thinking like, what's commodifiable? What can I sell? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write it that way. Um, I've seen it. I've seen people build pretty successful careers, successful meaning monetarily. Um, but I think at the end of the day, it's ultimately a pretty fallow ground creatively. And I think your peers kind of see through it and everybody sees through it. And the people that have made a living, an extraordinary living, <laughs> uh, making shit basically, do you feel that nobody respects them in the business and blah, 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 for reason, for good reason, because there is no artistic merit to just placating what you think is, uh, what you think other people want of you, which is just fucking horrendous. Now, does that mean you shouldn't market yourself thoughtfully? No, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, I think marketing is important to get people in the door of what you're selling, but don't, you can't create stuff from a marketing perspective. You create it and then you go, well, how can I make this a little more? How can we market it after it's been made? I think is the, the proper way. What is my dog doing? But, uh, but yeah, so I don't know, man, the affirmations, I, I really, I just really, my asshole twitches when I hear they're lucky to have me. I'm the best. <laughs> like, oh boy, because I've seen many a comedian with that mind frame. And let me tell you, it reads, I, it reads to me. I don't know. I don't know about you, but I can tell exactly what insecure little shit just got on stage with that fucking thought as the directive, as opposed to. I'm going to tell my truth. I'm going to share this thing that I personally think is funny. Uh, I do not, the rewards are not mine. It's, it's out of my control. But I'm going to bring you something that I think was pretty fucking great when I sat down and I created it. And it's my gift to the world. It's my, <clears throat> excuse me, my gift to you. It's the, it's the song that I sing because I can't do anything else. Even with this fucking podcast, let me tell you, uh, I'm six months pregnant now. I got a bunch of other stuff happening and there are weeks where I'm like, I, I can't do that steep bro anymore. I can't, I fucking can't because I don't have the time. I don't have the, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I have a toddler. I'm sick all the time. Blah blah blah. And then I find myself compelled to do it every week. I get sucked back into this because my heart is into this show you see what I'm saying, Rudy? You see what I'm saying, Theo? You see what I'm saying, Denise? Is that I fucking sit around and I think about movies and I think about stuff and I go, oh, that's such a great thought. I, I really wish I could share that with somebody because I know that I've had trouble with it myself and I want to share. And then I go, gosh, wouldn't it be great if I had a podcast? I, I do have a podcast! Ah! <laughs> so there. So that's my thought of the week. Um... Don't sweat yourself, man. Let other people sweat your technique, but don't sweat your own fucking technique because 
And I think arrogance is the death of creativity, definitely. The minute you think you're the fucking... No, it's good to be proud of what you do. I believe in that. I believe in acknowledging the level of proficiency you have at something. But I think when you're... The minute that you're done learning is like... That's when you eat shit. That's when you see people eating shit is when they stop growing and learning and evolving. So anyway, that's my two fucking... It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Let's get into to emails, but first let's do our theme song. You want to know why you're all fucked up? There you go. Oh, okay. Uh, well, let's get into this one. I thought this was fairly interesting. You know, I'm always intrigued when I get a letter from a philosophy major. I'm not going to say this kid's name. He writes, hi, mom. I'm a 19-year-old philosophy major from Sacramento. Whoop, whoop. Unsure about his future or any sense of like who he is, you know? But the one thing I do know is that I love comedians. I took a stand-up comedy class to jetstart my interest with a real-life stand-up guy and have done some stand-up shows sporadically with school and work permitting. And with more experience under my belt, I've come to the conclusion that I suck at it. I generally get stone faces on stage after years of growing up and people telling me I was, quote, the funny guy. Now it seems with every new joke, it gets worse. And part of my identity is under attack. I understand failure is part of the process, but it hurts so goddamn much. My questions are how long should you suck at something before you decide to reevaluate your interests? And what are the best ways to deal with failure? Are there any how-tos on attacking something you have no idea how to handle? Okay. All right. (laughs) Poor dude. Um, Okay. So look, you've got a burning desire, and I think that's a maze. And congratulations for getting off your ass at 19 years old, my God, to start pursuing an interest. That's like half the battle. Because I get emails from 49 years old, 49 year old people who have no idea what they want to do. And at least you know what you want. Um, okay. Here's the deal. I mean, there's a book called, I want to say it is motherfucking Outliers. Read Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell. Please do me a favor and read that book. Uh, simply because I believe Malcolm Gladwell points this out. I fucking think it's him. The idea of uh, beginner's luck. Um, and I believe this too, because I, I've had this happen to me where when you try a new endeavor, something you're interested in and you feel a, a pull towards a when you're drawn to something and you pick it up for the first time, you'll notice that This has happened to me like with shooting guns on a gun range or like golfing or something. You ever notice beginner's luck where you do it and you do it so well and you're like, whoa, that's crazy. And then the next time you do it, you don't have that luck. 
Well, the theory being that the first time you pick something up, you're not you're you're kind of allowing yourself to be loosey goosey, and you're playing, and your unconscious kind of takes over, and your natural inclination will guide you, right? And then you get in your head later, and that's when you screw things up because you're like, "Well, I got to learn this technique. I got to learn da da da," and then. And then your intuitiveness gets like squashed by all that. Um, so I would ask you, my love, did you have some form of beginner's luck when you began your journey into stand-up comedy? Uh, it sounds like you have a natural inclination to be funny if your friends are telling you you're the funny guy. That's great. Uh, um, and I think that's the death of stand-up for the audience because they. Um, I'm just meaning for like comics always kind of battle that because the audience thinks that they're always the funny guy in the room, but stand up is the art, um, the art of being funny under extreme pressure <laughs> consistently, uh, under, under horrible conditions consistently. It's finding out your dog died that morning. Um, your mom has cancer, you, you, whatever had horrible calamity happen to you and you still need to get on stage and make people laugh. So being the funny guy at a party is really, really different than being a professional comedian because what standups do, it's, it's under like such bananas dress. Like you're, you're in another state. Um, the conditions are never really optimal and yet you do it, you do it and you do it and you do it. So it's a different muscle, believe it or not, <laughs> but you must have the kernel of being funny, of being naturally funny. Yes, obviously, because what is comedy, but timing <sighs> or timing as Steve Martin says, it's timing. It's a certain rhythm that you understand. It's a music. It's a way of seeing the world that is uniquely yours, especially in stand-up. It's a very specific art. So you're learning a new art form. You're learning how to take what's naturally funny about you and then put it into this. Uh, you ever played with Play-Doh? Into like a Play-Doh mold, right? So you're funny within the rules of this art form. Now, because you're 19, I'm guessing, I'm guessing, I mean, because I've seen this over and over Younger, it's great that you're starting younger. It's also a detriment because the audiences you're performing in front of are likely adults. Uh, people that have jobs and mortgages and children and sit in traffic for two hours a day and deal with a whole different reality than what you as a 19-year-old philosophy major in Sacramento deal with, okay? So know that it might be the topics you're choosing. I'm thinking... Uh, cause I remember being very, very young and I think 23 or 26. No, I started stand up at 26 and like audiences not relating unless they were my age. And then it wasn't until I became an adult and had these adult problems that I started to relate to the audience and they started to laugh more at me. So it could be your age and your topic matter. What are you talking about? Uh, Hey guys, you ever have an ontological dilemma? Oh, what about that Occam's razor? I mean, what are you now that there's not, that's not to say that you can't make those jokes work eventually you can, but if that's the kind of shit you're leading with, I guarantee you've got a harder road and making that material work for you. Um, 
Maybe you had a fucking lame teacher. I don't know who this comedian is that you refer reference. I don't know. Maybe he's, maybe that teacher wasn't for you. And so now you're practicing a method that's not really, um, for you. And I will ask you this. When you started stand up, did you have beginner's luck? That's a really great way of gauging anything that you think you want to do for a living creatively or whatever. Did you have a natural inclination where it was somewhat effortless in the beginning for you to do until your conscious mind and your insecurities took over and essentially led you down a shit rabbit hole of self-doubt and self-loathing? Now, and I will say this with my career with being a stand-up, yeah, I was one of those people who got up. I wasn't, I, I didn't kill. I'm not, I'm not going to tell you I had a standing ovation or any horse shit like that. But I did get laughs. My first show, I did get laughs the first time I stood up and I spoke in front of people. I, you know, there were little indicators. Look for the indicators. Um, for instance, in college, I took a public speaking class and I did really well in that. I had no idea I would become a stand up comedian. But uh, I just knew that I had that, that thing, that inclination. So look at your history. The past generally dictates the future in terms of your um, successes and, and your proclivities and such. And, uh, but okay, on the other hand, you know what? I've also seen dudes that have been at stand-up for 10 years and haven't moved up a single peg on the totem pole, uh, to which I would say, get the fuck out. <laughs> Honestly, and maybe your love of comedy isn't as a performer. Maybe you're meant to be the manager. Maybe you're meant to be the club owner. Maybe you're meant to be the entertainment lawyer. Maybe you're meant to be the agent. Maybe you're meant to be a million other roles in the business of comedy, but not necessarily the person behind the microphone. So I do not dream crush young people. I think that is the root of all evil. I will never, ever tell you uh, to not try and do and try again. And I think in your case, it sounds like if people are telling you you're the funny guy and it, and it compelled you to go take a class this young in life, something tells me that, yeah, you might be on the right path, but you may, it's because of your age. I'm just guessing something tells me, something tells me it's just your age. It's being 19 and not having a really good frame of reference to talk to adults. Are you doing, are you doing mics um, that are conducive to your success or are you doing bars? Are you, you know, shit like that. Like, can you go down to the sack punchline and do open mic night um, at the punch and see if that's something? You got to get up in front of real audiences. Don't just do open mics because open mics are really death. Those are just other comedians in the back of the room kind of looking to, you know, sizing you up or whatever. Um, yeah. Anyways, I think you need to broaden your material, topics, subjects. It's like I said, I just have a feeling. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyways, look, and also in your set, I mean, it's okay to get stone faces, but not the whole time. Are you getting some chuckles? Are you counting those chuckles? If you're getting a chuckle at an open mic, that's equal to killing in a regular room, just so you know. So there's that kind of math <clears throat> that goes into this. Why don't you fucking just send me your set for fuck's sake? Send me your set. I'll tell you what you're doing wrong, at least technically. I will never tell you creatively or whatever. 
You know what I'm saying? Send me your fucking set, kid. All right, let's go on. Uh, hi, Mommy Christina. I need your wise consideration. Oh, wait. Okay. Uh, 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 on the topic of compromising in marriage and parenting. Previously, my husband and I have agreed to have one vacation trip a year, and we've been doing it in, in October for three years. This October, we were in Cyprus for two weeks with grandma and our two sons, five-year-old and seven-month-old. At that moment, we live in the Ukraine, so it's three. It's a three-hour flight and the same time zone. Kids were sick from the day before. Great. Both congested to extreme coughing nonstop. I called the doctor to see them three times. Baby wasn't sleeping a single night, coughing so hard. I was up comforting him at all hours and worrying about kids getting worse every day. They got better a week after we were back home. Nothing serious, but that vacation was not perfect for me. Now my husband insists on going to Egypt in April for at least a week. The thought of a flight with kids and possibility of sickness makes me so not excited. To be honest, I sort of hate traveling, much more so with kids. Yesterday, my mom called. I suggested maybe my husband go with our five-year-old and my mother-in-law if he wants to go that much and I stay back at home with a one-year-old. My mom told me, I must go if I want to have a family. I hate to be forced and sh- and scared into vacation. Also, I know once there, I can't show any unsatisfaction, unhappiness, or be a party pooper. Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> um, firstly, Olga, my love, uh, I agree with you. Traveling with little people sucks. It is the worst. And in fact, my husband and I, have put a total stop to flying with small children until they are an age where we both feel comfortable. Meaning from now on, we are only driving to vacations. <laughs> um, I've flown with, we've flown with LJ twice now, once to Florida and once to Hawaii. And the amount of anxiety that both he and I suffered through it's just not worth it. It's not worth it. And then LJ was sick the last time we went to Hawaii. Uh, he had an ear infection the day before. So like this poor baby, man, the doctor said he could fly, so it was fine. But uh, I get you. It's not fun. And I I wish I were one of those people who had zero anxiety and they fly with their eight-week-olds across the world and they go to China and they go to India with their babies and they eat street food. That's great. If you can do that, then great. Then do it. But girl, I hear you. And I don't know why the fuck people think it's fun to take their babies on vacations. Um, basically, you're just taking care of your baby on a vacation. <laughs> Uh, and now your kid's eating schedule's fucked up, sleeping is messed up, they're not in their regular environment, so they can't sleep right, they're not doing anything normal. It's, it's a nightmare. Frankly, for me, it's a nightmare. So I get it. I really get it. And I ain't doing it no more for that reason. People are like, why do you ever travel with your baby when you do stand-up? Hell no, because I want to sleep. I want to sleep and I want to have a life. So my love, here's what I would suggest to you. Uh, if your mom is so insistent on you being a whole family, why doesn't she come along and help on the trip? 
Is that some, is that a possibility? Because we travel with our nanny and that helps so much, so much. We still have anxiety, believe it or not. But if you can travel with help, help, uh, that would really make a difference. And if she's so gung ho on the family being together, bitch, why don't you get your ass on the plane and help me with the little ones? Uh, so I would ask her and ask your husband, tell your husband. And I, I don't know what kind of communication you have with your boo. He wants to go to Egypt in April. Have you told him like, Hey man, I got massive diarrhea. Just thinking about, just thinking about taking these kids and everybody being sick. And it's a drag for me. It's really not fun. It's really not fun. And, and see what he says. Maybe he has a solution. Maybe he wants to bring his mother along on the journey. Uh, and maybe she'll be willing to help with the children um, if they are sick because help does make things better. Um, should he go alone with a five-year-old? Yeah, why not? If that's, an, that's another choice you guys can have, another option rather. Um, but I would present it to your husband first from a perspective of, look, this is really a nightmare for me. It gives me crippling anxiety. I don't enjoy the vacation knowing that the kids are sick and I have to take care of them and they're not in their environments. It throws off the schedule. You know, you know the whole drill. Um, and see what he suggests. That, thus taking the, um, the responsibility off of you to come up with a solution. Uh, I, Egypt, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine taking LJ to fucking Egypt and a baby. Ugh. Are you kidding me? The Middle East? Oh, my God. The food's different. The, the Everything smells different. Everything's different. No. No. Ugh, girl. Anyway, tell you, I know your mom means well, and she's trying to keep you guys together as a family, but, uh, you know, unless she's helping, she don't got an opinion. You know what I'm saying? But... Bring it up to your boo. Maybe he has a he has a solution. And if not, don't fucking go. It's not worth it. Um, I, I you know I would say honestly it, it isn't worth it because you're going to be miserable. And what's the point? You're just trying to make everyone else happy. You're going to be resentful. You're going to hate it. I hated it. I ha- I hated traveling with Ellis as a baby. We even went just locally. Uh, we stayed by the ocean here for like two or three nights when he was about seven months old too. Yeah. And he was, he was healthy and I hated it. <laughs> he was up all night crying cause he didn't know where the hell he was. That's such a nightmare. It is such a fucking nightmare. Ugh, I'm sorry, girl. Why, why Egypt? Why does he have to go? Yeah. Tell him to take the five-year-old, stay home with the baby. Big deal. You're, what is that? Like a week of your life that you're not going to see your husband and you're, your five-year-old, maybe he'll gain an appreciation for all that you do when he has to be alone with a five-year-old himself who may be sick. Because if he doesn't have empathy for you, uh, maybe he will after a trip alone with his own kid and seeing how miserable that can be. Or not. I don't know. It really depends on your boo-boo and your husband. Thankfully, my husband and I are equally neurotic and equally anxious about traveling with small children. I couldn't imagine if he was like, let's go to Paris. Let's take the newborn and a two and a half year old. Yeah, let's get on a plane. What? They don't mind. What is it? A 10 hour flight? Yeah. No, little boys love sitting still in a tiny seat 
for 10 hours on a plane. That's perfect for, for toddlers. They don't need to move, especially boys. They don't need to move and touch and destroy every five seconds. It's torture for them. It's just oh, fucking, I don't know. Some, some kids are different, obviously. But for us, oh, I just had endless anxiety. Poor LJ. Oh, forget it. Forget it. I don't care if I never travel again, too. I never care. I don't care. I've already seen the world. I've seen it. It's all the same shit. Just kidding. It's not. <laughs> but uh, the U.S., I feel like, yeah, I've, I've seen it. I get it. Malls, yeah, okay. Cornfields, sure, sure, sure. Swamps, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mountains, cool. He doesn't need to see that. Not now. Maybe later. Okay. Let's get into this one. Oh, this one breaks my heart. Hey, jeans. A few days ago, my boss pulled us to pulled us, meaning the corporate team, together, and told us he had some bad news. He proceeded to tell us that a coworker's boyfriend had passed away the previous Friday. From social media and those who are close with her at work, he gathered that it was suicide. Ooh. This woman is the absolute sweetest person I have ever met, and I am totally devastated for her. Yesterday slash last night, eight of us from work went to the showing for this man. We were waiting in line when our coworker saw us standing there and said, Oh my God, thank you guys so much for coming. And hugged us all, and we all cried. It was all very emotional, of course. We are not close as coworkers, and the most that I've ever spoken with her is in passing or small meaningless conversations on breaks. I find myself thinking of her frequently and I feel for her so much. One of my friends committed suicide some years back and I feel almost obligated to reach out to her like we are in some suicide club. When I saw her last night, there were so many things I wanted to say to her, but I just couldn't find the words. I wanted to tell her how sorry I was. I wanted to tell her about my friend and that if she needed anything, I would be there, even if she just wanted to sit and not talk or something stupid like that. My question is, should I reach out? Sometimes people appreciate the gesture and sometimes they just want to be left the fuck alone. Thanks, Mommy Lindsay. Oh, I'm sorry, Lindsay. Well, firstly, I'm sorry for your loss. It's tragic. It's really, really, really um, terrible. I can't even imagine. I, I don't think I've had anyone commit suicide. I've, I've had acquaintances do it, uh, but I'm so sorry. It's, it's got to be horrendous. And um, yeah, so you're asking... Should you reach out to somebody who's had something quite similar happen to them? Um, yeah, why not? I think, I think in our culture, death is like, especially with Americans, it's so silly. We never talk about it. And we're so terrified of it. We've built an entire industry around staying alive forever. I mean, what do you think all the vitamins and the, the fitness machines and the cars and the whatever. It's all immortality, right? Marketed. But uh, yeah, when the shit hits the fan and it gets real, uh, I think a lot of people get really spooked by it. And their inclination is to leave that person alone. And I think that that is the absolute wrong inclination. Uh, as somebody who's dealt with, I uh, know, a few deaths in my family, like, I, I really don't understand why people don't. <laughs> Even just the email of like, hey, you know, I know you're struggling with this. I, ha- I have something similar. I'd love, if you need me, I'm here. Here's my number. Here's my, whatever, whatever. Just the gesture alone is very comforting to somebody in mourning. Uh, 
You know? Yeah. And, and it sounds like she's receptive to you guys. She said, oh, my God, thank you guys so much for coming when you showed up um, at the wake, I think is what this is called. Uh, the showing, I guess. Oh, geez. Uh, so she appreciated you being there. She's not, it doesn't sound like she's uh, averse to reaching out for help. It's okay if you're not close as coworkers. So what? You're human beings. And I think that so many times we get in our own heads and we have this wonderful inclination to reach out to strangers and we don't do it. And it's silly because, you know, you might be meant to to know this person. Uh, I, I've often had encounters with, quote, strangers, people, and it's been really lovely, you know, when you share a common thing because that person might be seeking you out. I know that sounds so silly and cosmic, but in a weird way, you meet people and you get to talking and, oh, wait a minute, you had this thing, this horribly weird thing happen to you too? You got to be kidding me. I just had this happen and, wow, I'm so glad we met. Isn't that fortuitous that, you know, you can kind of guide me through this thing? You know, maybe you and this girl are meant to be together for a time and a season where you can help her deal with her grief over uh, this tragic occurrence. Maybe that's your role for her right now. And if you don't reach out, then you'll never know. What's the word she's going to say? Fuck off. Go away. Okay. So then she said, fuck off. Go away. No, thanks. Uh, but yeah, I think we get so spooked by death and it's so silly because it's going to happen to everybody. And I mean, I know when I've had deaths uh, in my family, I was actually surprised that a lot of people didn't like just say, you know, hey, condolences. <laughs> Like when my mother died, there were, I had family members that didn't even like text me over it. I'm like, seriously, really guys, <laughs> the worst family. Uh, it was so odd. It was like, and I get it. I get that people are spooked by death and they don't want to like, they don't want to intrude or whatever, like kind of how you're feeling. But uh, let me tell you that when you're grieving, it does help to have people reach out and just like you said, just to sit there and be with you as you cry or grieve or whatever. You don't have to say anything. You just have to sit there and be present with them. And I, that's like the biggest thing you can do to help somebody who just had a death because they're in shock. You know, I think you walk around kind of in a, a shock haze for like, at least I did with my mother for a, a, for at least a month of just like, wait, What? what? And I have to go down to the the morgue and wait, I have to fill out papers now? I have to cancel her visa card? Wait, who? <laughs> what do I have to do? It's so surreal when something like this happens that she's just, she's probably in a state of shock, you know? And I think the more, the more anchors you have to reality, when something tragic happens, the better, even if it's just people offering to be human with you for a moment. You know, nobody knows what to do when somebody dies. Nobody knows. People get freaked out. What do I do? Would I be in casserole? Should I go? It's like, just all you have to do is let that person know that you're here, that you're here, that you're willing to be present for their grief and that you're willing to uh, to sit Shiva, right? Isn't that what the Jews do? I think it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful idea of sitting Shiva. We sit, I think one of these sit for a week, I'm not sure, a week or so, and you just grieve. 
you sit with your family, you're meant to sit still and you be still and you grieve with your, your loved ones. Makes sense. Makes total sense. But it's the idea of grieving with others. Because when you're grieving, the worst thing you can do is be alone. It feels terrible. It feels really, really terrible. So you want someone to just kind of sit there and let let you cry. And then comes a surreal task of doing your life when somebody dies. I remember driving home from a grocery run after my mother had died and I was pregnant uh, with Ellis. And I was like thinking to myself, wow, I just, like, I just came from the morgue yesterday. I just like filled out all the paperwork for her. And, uh, and here I am getting groceries. And this person no longer exists on the planet right now. Like such a heavy thing happens and then you're like, but I still have to buy chicken breasts. <laughs> I still have to make dinner tonight? Wait, you mean the world doesn't stop turning because of this personal tragedy that has just occurred? No, it really doesn't. I mean, it can for a few days, but like eventually you got to get out of bed. You got to start doing the stuff that you did before, only now you do it in a a funkier state of mind. You do it in kind of a haze for a while, right? You do it from a surreal reality place. Doesn't make sense for so long. And then it gets easier gradually, gradually, gradually until the realization starts to sink in. And and then you do the work of being sad, right? And for those of us that had shitball parents, crazy parents, alcoholic, mentally ill Nut bags for parents. Oh boy, the grieving gets even more complicated, doesn't it? That's the word for it, complicated grieving. Where you didn't even like them that much, yet you're fucked up over the fact that they're gone. Oh geez. And by the way, I get asked this question so frequently. If I regret not having connected with my mother before she died because I went no contact with her uh, about eight years before she died. So I didn't see my mother for eight years. And then I got a call when I was in Canada that she was dead and like, Oh my God. Oh my God. So (laughs) if you're listening to this and you have a parent and you've gone no contact and you're racked with guilt over the prospect of them dying and you never having reconciled with them, uh, personally, it was not even an option. And the reason being, if you want to have a relationship with somebody, you must share a reality. You hear what I'm saying? You have to share a fucking reality. And my mother was on another planet for the last decade or more, I would even say, of her life. So there was no reconciling. There was no hope of a come to Jesus. A There was no, you know, it makes me so crazy when I watch these movies where like the shit bird dad, like there's this movie called, I think nothing in common with Jackie Gleason. And I, I want to say like Tom Hanks from the eighties. And Jackie Gleason's just this curmudgeon-y shit bird of a dad who was just cruel and mean to his son. And he's on his deathbed. And lo and behold, you know, the son shows up and can overlook this ornery dad. And they end up bonding and they end up having this thing. And it's like, well, okay. You know, I, I've never seen that happen in reality. And I think it's a fantasy 
um, especially if you're dealing with people that have addictions, mental illness, real fucking mental problems, the fantasy that they will somehow (laughs) change, come to Jesus and become the parent you've always wanted on their deathbed. It is a fucking Hollywood fantasy. Maybe it's happened in reality. I have yet to hear of it where the parent has an epiphany that they've been shitbirds their whole life to you, your whole life, and have been narcissistic or bipolar and haven't given a shit really. But now suddenly they they get it. They get your pain and they get your strife. And now they're this perfect parent. I fucking highly doubt it. Um, but is it probably, has it, I'm sure, I'm sure there's these outliers. I'm sure there's the anomaly where this can happen, but it probably doesn't happen in people, like I said, who are severely mentally ill or severely, um, drug addled or have alcoholism, like deep problems that they're in such a fucking mental haze they cannot see out of, okay? So if it's something as simple as like, well, you're, you know, your dad's kind of a jerk, your mom is just kind of an asshole, selfish person, she might have a come to Jesus on her deathbed. But if your mom was severely narcissistic and really didn't give two shits about you or your brothers or your sisters and managed to sabotage everything ever in your life and her life. It was a total POS her whole life. I doubt it that on her deathbed, she's going to get it. (laughs) Uh, And can you have a relationship with somebody who's made you miserable your whole life? I don't think so. And I think it's it's a fantasy. It's a childish fantasy that so many of us we want we wish we had a different parent and you you want that person to be different and they're just not so you can keep trying you can keep banging your head against that mommy daddy wall um, and you can keep getting angry every time they disappoint you by doing something totally within their character and their nature or you can surrender to the fact that you kind of didn't have good luck with uh, the cosmic lottery and who your parents were uh you know, and then there are these fucking Buddhists uh, who will say horse shit like, well, it's your karma to be born to crappy parents. And now look what a great person you'd be. I don't care. I don't care that I'm a good person. I really don't. <laughs> I would have taken lovely parents over being this karmically uh, fulfilled. Put it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, I got empathy for days for everybody. And yeah, I think it's made me. Uh, a good person in a lot of ways having shitty parents, but uh, I trade all of that in a second for a Coke and a smile with mom and dad at the beach. Good times, noodle salad, as Jack Nicholson says. Um, it is good as it gets. Yes. <laughs> but I love closing on death. You guys, I love death. You know me. I'm i uh, I'm a, I'm a, uh, realist. I am a uh, fucking hardcore Eastern blocker. I am a hundred percent Eastern block. My 23andMe DNA test came back. I am a hundred percent Hungarian. A hundred. Not this fucking horse shit where people are like, I'm a quarter Cherokee. I'm a quarter a Turkish. I'm 0.5% Ashkenazi. No, 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 boo-boos. Did you hear me? I'm 100% hard fucking core Eastern Bloc to my 
down to the very fiber of my being. And what does that mean? That means I'm resilient. I am a human cockroach. When the fucking uh, uh, apocalypse comes, I'm going to be living off of radioactive crumbs because that's the DNA I've been blessed with, blessed with, blessed with this crazy, resilient DNA. Now, the flip side of it is that Hungarians and Hungary had the highest suicide rate in the world at one point. (laughs) We are all so dark fucking brooding souls, uh, uh, probably because of our shitty, horribly tragic history of the, the Germans, the Russians ruining our land. But the point is, we're very existential, I believe. Uh, I'm very existential, meaning that death is inevitable. It is fucking coming for you. It's already coming for you. Your body is atrophying, unless you're like 20 years old for the rest of us. You're already decomposing. Right now, you're decomposing. I am decomposing. As I'm creating a life in my belly, I am fucking dying. With that being said, it is the most liberating, fantastic, uh, life-affirming, joyful thing I can even conceive of is my death. The inevitability of my death and your death, my dog's death, my children's death, my husband's death, who I love more than life. My nanny's death, the death of my neighbor, the death of all of this, the extinction of the planet, the human race, the fucking shit human shit dog race that we are. But within that kernel is the absolute joy of today and the absolute fucking radness that is your life and the absolute improbability of your existence in the first place on a rock that's spinning in the universe amongst universes amongst galaxies it doesn't make any sense it makes no sense that we're here we don't even know where other life exists uh, somewhere in the universe but it does and we're on this rock that it has weird humans it's so unlikely it's so bizarre that you even exist So before you get all caught up in your drama and your day-to-day shit and the traffic and the bills and the mortgage and the what am I going to do about me? Yes, I know. It's all very important. But at the same time, it's really not that fucking important, right? It isn't. It isn't. It's major and it's not. And it's all going to be okay. You know why? Because you're going to fucking die one day. (laughs) And that should be the most liberating thought for you. So... My loves who are afraid to, to act on your beliefs. My loves, you're out there, you're afraid. Should I do this? What should I do? Yeah, fucking do it. Who cares? Make the mistake. Make the mistake. Go for it. Do what you want. Do what you got to do because it's going to end. And that's the fucking glory of existence and the tragedy of it all. Okay. Would you fucking read Malcolm Gladwell? Would you read the book Outliers for those of you emailing me about what should I do with my life? How do I get better at something? Read that fucking book. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go and I'm going to act today. I'm going to I'm going to um meet with my acting kids. They're so cute, little 20-year-olds. I always I host the rehearsals at my house because A, I'm more comfortable here. And B, I have a fucking grown-ass house. I'm a grown woman. I got grown-ass woman snacks. I got grown-ass woman couches. I have grown-ass woman life. And I love these kids. They're so fucking cute, man. These 20-year-olds are just like, I just love them. I want them to all live with me. 
just watching them struggle, watching them, watching their concerns. You know, I, I love when they're like, oh my God, I can't eat pizza at midnight anymore. I'm gaining weight. <laughs> I love it when they're like, oh, ever since I turned 28, I can't just eat anything anymore. I'm like, oh, yeah, wait until 41 kicks around. You basically can't eat. Once your mind just stop, you can't eat. How do you lose weight? Don't, don't eat. That's the big fucking diet tip. <laughs> oh, you want to be skinny past 40? Well, just remember the good meals you've had in your past. That's how you do it. Like I literally, I do, I'll, I'll eat like the fucking uh, 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 diet version of a snack. Like for instance, pizza. That's all I want to eat with this pregnancy. All I want all day is Domino's thin crust cheese pizza. That's all I think about. It's all I dream about. I lay in bed. Uh, do I order it all the time? No. Do I do it every now and then? Yes. But what I do is I make my cauliflower crust cheat version. I got a frozen cauliflower crust and then I put cheese and tomato sauce on that. It, it doesn't taste like pizza at all. But what I do is I eat that horrible 41-year-old version of it. And then I remember pizza's past that I've eaten. I literally go back and I, I close my eyes and I pretend it's Domino's. <sighs> And then I eat that shitty fucking grown-up version of it. And that's what I do. I reminisce about meals past. Because I, I, I don't want to be fat. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't, don't want to be fucking fat anymore. It's the worst. It's the worst. It's the worst. God damn it. Okay. I got to go. Uh, I love you guys. Uh, email me. That's deep bro podcast at gmail.com. Check out my live shows, Christina P online, my tour dates. Again, I'm telling you January of 2019, I will be doing a theater tour. So I'll be coming across the country and doing all that. We're working on it now. I'm so excited. And all right. Until, until then, uh, that's been deep bro. Now what? I don't know. Philosophize with Philosophize with Christina P, a.k.a. Miss Jeans This ain't your mom's house It's a different theme Gotta be critically thinking Like you caught up at a cocktail party Our thoughts start to sink in John Locke, or was it Socrates? Aristotle or Plato, maybe Hippocrates Got us talking all properly, topically Just a comedian discussing these philosophies Serious questions, silly people What's that? What's that? That's deep, bro it is the ultimate metaphor for life, and you know what that is? What? That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro. That's deep, bro.